Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are here tonight to continue the exploration of the teachings that we can extract from the actions and words of Jesus, who uses symbols, metaphors from a different spiritual meridian, but nevertheless who speaks about the same wisdom, the same spirituality, the same spiritual evolution, as the yogis do. And it's a very interesting exercise to draw bridges between them and to see what does this mean from the standpoint of yoga. Last time, in our last satsang, I was exploring, I was commenting on this parable of the sower, where Jesus, after he revealed that the explanations are given to a small number of people, then he just explained the metaphorical meanings and he said that the seed is the word of God in his parable, in his metaphor. This information alone would, uh, op would open up so many avenues from the standpoint of yoga because the Word of God is a very important concept both in Christianity but also in the Indian mysticism where the Word is a divine aspect and the metaphysics of India makes a very clear difference between the sound and the Word. Right now, I am transmitting to you word. If I would be transmitting sound, it would be like this. Ah, I'm sharing sound with you. But the sound, and you can hear the sound and you can hear the word. What's the difference between them? The difference between them is that the word contains information. There are three things which are transferred in this universe. Matter, which means substance, energy, and info. For example, if I'm singing to you a sound like, ah, that is a transfer of energy as well. You all know from the yoga practices, which are based on like the vowel meditation, <clears throat> the vowel pranayama, you know that just uh, having a certain sound with its harmonics, with its overtones and undertones, it transmits a certain energy, like a certain vowel of the language, of course it all comes from Sanskrit, I'm sorry for that, a certain vowel coming from Sanskrit, it will transmit a certain energy focused on a chakra. And therefore you can say, well, a thing as simple as that, like a vowel, it also transmits an information. Because if I say, ah, and that corresponds to a certain chakra. But when I say a chakra, it means a whole world, it means a whole universe, it means a whole level of consciousness. It means a certain level of the universe. 
<coughs> and on that level of the universe, things are very specific. Emotions, knowledge, mentality, quality of energy, and everything which derives from it, like behavior, reactions, and so on, they all of them mean something. So, of course, even with the sound, I transmit information, but very primitively, like very simplified. While in the moment when I'm talking to you, listen to what a avalanche of phonemes and concatenations of phonemes, syllables, words, and all of them make sense in a certain way. So right now there is also a pure information running between I and you. Yeah, in the satsang it's unilateral because I'm talking and you are listening. And thus the information is flowing from me to you via the aspect that we call word or speech. So word is a bit more complicated than sound. Word is sound which is mixed up with phonemes and articulated language and that gives the possibility of communication of very sophisticated information. Theoretically, I could speak to you and speak to you and explain to you and explain to you and I could teach you anything from how to boil polenta to how to manufacture an atomic bomb. All of them could be transmitted verbally by me if I have the necessary time and if I have that information. And therefore, um, word allows us to transmit the complete information. Word is sound which is modulated with information. Simple sound, uh, it transmits a very, very limited information, exactly as you'd have an image out of which to transmit only the frame, like the frame of a yandra, you know? And I'm saying it's anahata. Yeah, but what in anahata? Explain to me, and so on. There's a lot, a lot of details. So, please understand that exactly as there is substance, energy, information, the three qualities, the three things which are being transferred and shared, exactly in the same way, the word is different from the sound itself. And this aspect of the word is considered to be the mixture of energy and consciousness. It is exactly the resultant of Shiva and Shakti, as the Tantric tradition calls them. Shiva, the consciousness, and Shakti, the energy. And then it all becomes speech. This speech, which is called Vak in Sanskrit, is figuring in the Bible, the Gospel of John, that I have never commented, if I don't know if I'll ever reach to that, because the Gospel of Luke is very long, and this series of satsangs is taking a huge, long time. But the in the Gospel of John, the beginning of the Gospel of John starts directly with this. He says, in the beginning there was the Word, not the sound, the Word. The word is not just sound. Yeah? In the beginning there was the word. The word is like a sort of an intelligent sound. A sound which is modulated by consciousness. In the beginning there was the word and the word was with God and God was the word. Like the word in its highest format, in its primary format, 
which is called in Kashmiri Shaivism and other parts of India as well, Paravak, the supreme Vak, that is considered to be God. It's Shiva. Shiva and Shakti are at the level of Paravak. And thus, Paravak is the word of God which created the world. And God said, let there be light. It's a word. It's an intelligent sentence. It's a statement. It's an act of will. Moreover, in India, the spiritual literature is called Shastra. If you talk about Bhagavad Gita or you talk about Yoga Sutra, they are all called Shastras. Shastras, in the old Sanskrit language, it means what has been heard. Heard. Which once tells us that they liked very much the auditory things. They don't say what has been seen. And all those of you who did the first level in Agama, you know that to see the sense of sight is related to the visual ether in Manipura Chakra, while to hear, the sense of hearing is related to the auditory ether in Vishuddha Chakra. So working with visual things is working mostly through Manipura and working with auditory things works mostly through Vishuddha. Working with the Yantra works mostly through the level of Manipura. Working with the Mantra works mostly through Vishuddha. That's why the Tantric tradition of India and Tibet actually prefers Mantras to Yantras because they are considered to be more spiritual, more elevated, more close to the original spiritual things. Can you work with Yantras if you are very visual? Yes. But it's a sort of a more primitive method, although it can be a very, very, very effective method of working spiritually. And if you are visual in the beginning, it is very rewarding. It's the thing which brings you a lot of success. And thus, what I'm trying to tell you here is the fact that the word is again praised. Vak, the word, the divine word, Paravak, and Shastras, what has been heard, that Matsyendranath, Guru Matsyendranath, overheard Shiva talking to Shakti and explaining the science of Hatha Yoga. And then Guru Matsyendra became the first Guru of Hatha Yoga of the lineages of India, the big ones, around 5th, 6th century, when Hatha Yoga exploded in India, and it became one of the methods of the late Kali Yuga, which we use today a lot. So, there are so many connections with this Word of God. The Word of God is not only about what Jesus says, or about what the Bible says. When the yogis of India, like Patanjali, transmit to you the science about Yama and Niyama, how to behave to be karma-free, to be 99% okay, so that you can go to God, so that you can unfold your spiritual quest, then Patanjali transmits to you the Word of God. God is talking through Patanjali, exactly as the Israeli 
Jewish prophets who in the old days suddenly they would feel the state of inspiration and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is talking to you. And somebody who is skeptical and cynical would say, What the fuck? This is just uh, uh, Jeremiah, you know? What does, why does he say the God is talking to you? Because like, I'm speaking, but God is speaking through me. What I'm transmitting to you is a message from beyond. It's exactly like uh, uh, pro the prophet Muhammad who wrote the Quran at the dictation of an archangel. It's not the words of Muhammad. It's the words of Gabriel. And if it's the words of Gabriel, it's the words of God. Gabriel is transmitting the word of God. No? So therefore, this word of God means multiple things and it's not just a Jewish or Christian concept. No? And when Jesus says what's happening to the word of God, it means sure, you read some Ramakrishna or you read some Yogananda or you read some, or you see a lecture or you read a book by Vivekananda, the great Vivekananda of India or you read the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali or you listen to a satsang or to a lecture and then that's the word of God and how much of it stays in you? that a part of it is falling on the path where it cannot sprout, that a part of it falls on rocky land where it sprouts and dies very quickly, that a part of it is like this and a part of it is it's choked by thorns. I, I, I will not go through the whole metaphor again. This is referring, when it says the word of God, it means any informational transfer which comes from the divine. Sometimes God talks to people in the Bible, in the Quran, in the Bhagavad Gita, in the words of Jesus, in the words of Krishna, in the transmission which Muhammad received. All of it can be considered messages from God and even when human beings perceive them as contradictory or confusing, it's confusing simply because people don't understand the metaphysics of it and they cannot see that it's all one and the same thing, that people from different countries and different epochs, they had aspiration and they had a longing for the divinity and there has been information given to them about what to do, where to go, how to proceed. And therefore, this thing about the word of God, that it comes from Vishuddha Chakra, but of course, if it's the word of God, then it comes from Sahasrara originally. And through Vishuddha Chakra, we express it as speech. And all the rest of the things which I told you, so many doors I have opened, all of it shows us how rich this metaphor was that Jesus is saying what's happening with the revelation, what's happening with the Shastra, what's happening to the word of God. Remember, the word of God is the Shastras of Yoga as well. Garanda Samhita and Shiva Samhita and Hatha Yoga Pradipika, they are in a certain way the Word of God. And it's the seed. The question is, did you read the Hatha Yoga Pradipika? And if you read it, did it fall on the path? Did it fall on rocky ground? Did it fall among the thorns? Or did it fall in good earth? And then it sprouted producing effect. Yeah? It's the same thing. It's the fact that 
the divine consciousness in a very garbled way talks to humanity. But as Jesus says, those who have, some people will hear, but they will not understand. They will see, but they will not see. They will think that they see, they will look, but they will not see. So sometimes this information is not for everybody. And even Jesus, when he explains what's happening to this information, he talks in a parable. Please understand, this is uh, Jesus showing very clearly the laws of karma. The fact that there is a karma which regards spiritual information. And spiritual information is not just flowing chaotically like this. And he continues this related to the next parable. He had been going through quite a few parables right now in a row. And it's the parable of the lamp. Of course, in the old days, there were no electric lamps. You can transform it into an electric lamp parable. It meant a lamp, an oil lamp, like a candle inside a thing or something. It meant just a light-giving thing in the darkness. And he says something, he starts abruptly with something very beautiful. He says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. You would think that uh, Jesus is talking from the standpoint of a person. And he does. But he does not speak like, a, what would a person do with a light? It sounds very utilitarian, very common sense. You don't light a lamp and then you put it somewhere in a hidden place. If you put it in a hidden place, you can as well blow it off. Because it's useless if you put it under the bed. No, So it's like, so it's common sense. It's like a person thinks in a very utilitarian way. But the person about which, God, uh, about which Jesus talks here is no one else than God. Please never forget that God is a person. The ultimate person. The universal person. The absolute person. Uh, the Aham. Uh, the I am of the universe. That's how the Shiva tradition, the Kashmiri Shaivas, defines the Shiva consciousness, the I am of the universe. And therefore, Jesus says, don't think that God is a confused idiot. If you have common sense and practical sense, you think that God doesn't. So he says, God himself doesn't li light a lamp and hide it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Don't forget that the spiritual realization is the effect of grace as much or even more than the effect of personal practice. In religious life, like in Christianity, of course, Judaism, Islam, and even Hinduism to a large extent, insistence is made on this grace, like, may God's will be done. Everything happens according to this cosmic consciousness which is here and now right in front of our eyes and uh, we don't see it we don't normal people don't see it don't hear it don't perceive it 
And nevertheless, this cosmic consciousness is right here and now. It's in front of us and through us and everything. And we are in it and it is in us as well. And it's very difficult to understand how such a mysterious thing can be there. That we seek, not everybody, but some people, they wake up and they seek for themselves. They seek for Atman. They seek for immortality. They seek for freedom. And last but not least, they seek for God. And God is here and now. You are looking at it right now. You are it as well. It's the most present thing in the universe. Your own conscience, your own consciousness is part of it. Is aspect of this universal ocean. But there is something which prevents us from seeing it. It's like somebody has put a pencil in our brain, in our clockwork, and somehow our clockwork got stuck. And we are like... And we can't get there. We know we have a consciousness. We have heard all the statements of the Shastras, and still we can't see it. We can but it takes a certain amount of spiritual effort. Now, in Buddhism, where Buddha, like a hero after 9,999 lives of ignorance, he goes in his 10,000th life and there he hits jackpot, and he leaves his child, he leaves his wife, he goes in the jungle, he meditates, he gets under that body tree, and there he meditates until he reaches nirvana, there appears, and Buddha has never claimed it that way, but there appears the erroneous feeling that it's all a matter of personal effort. That you can do it. This is a Luciferian point of view. This is, if you want to make philosophy, dark philosophy with me, and you want to ask which is the difference between Satanism and Luciferianism, because Satan and Lucifer are not quite exactly the same, and there are other demonic names down there in hell, Luciferianism is the wrong belief that you can do it without God, that you are alone and everything depends on your willpower and on your decision. It doesn't. When you knock at a door, the door may be open or not. People say, yeah, but in the long run, it will be open. Yes, in the long run, it will be open. But in the long run, it means you knock now. And in this life, it is not open. And you cannot get pissed off at that. That's a very primitive feeling. You know, it's like total ego. The ego of a little ant in a corner of a galaxy. No, that, oh, I've been knocking and God didn't open. He will open in 33,000 years from now. Can you argue with that? Can you fight that? No, you cannot. You only imagine that you have something fundamental to say about that. So what I'm trying to say here is very clear. It's not only the personal effort that I'm saying, God, take me to your kingdom. God, take me to see Jesus. God says, soon. 
It's like that stupid joke in which somebody is trying to manipulate with God and God, some somebody prays to God and say, God, what is for you a million years? And God answers, just like a second, it's an instant. God, what is for you a million dollars? Nothing, just a grain of dust. God, with modesty, I'm asking you, just give me just a grain of dust, just a grain of your dust. At which God answers, yes, wait for a second. <laughs> no? Like, in the world of the divine consciousness, things have a completely different thing. And you can say, give me nirvana. Wait a second. It's a long second. So that's why, please always remember that in the metaphysical synthesis of what is happening in this universe, a lot depends on grace. Like grace will extremely seldom and in very, very weird ways fall upon somebody who is not asking for it. And usually when it falls upon somebody who is not asking for it, it is demonstrated that that soul, that brain, that body, that person, was anyway a very, 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 very special person. Like Buddha was a very advanced soul and he still had to go to the jungle and he did six years of day and night non-stop, nothing else, spiritual practice, until he reached nirvana. Six years in the world of yoga is considered to be average. Yogananda says that if you are more crazy than Buddha was, you can shorten it to three years. And if you are a bit more lazy than more slack than Buddha was, it will take 12 years. And more than 12 years it becomes almost like, oh boy, you know, it's like all your life you've been in school, like those people who never managed to graduate the third grade or the fourth grade, because they are half idiotic, and then they are 40 years old and they are still in school. No? And one example of this is the Guru of Ramakrishna. The Guru of Ramakrishna confessed that it took him 40 years of spiritual practice until he reached the state of Samadhi. And that was a naked Baba living in India and theoretically, theoretically, doing nothing but spirituality. But of course, he did a very, very watered-down spirituality if it took him 40 years. I don't want to judge him because that's an eminent yogi. Totapuri is a great yogi. But uh, nevertheless, we have this thing that if Yogananda's disciples one of Yogananda's disciples took 6-12 years and Totapuri took 40, then anybody who has any common sense would say he practiced something less effective than Yogananda's Kriya Yoga if he did it in 6 times the time. Some people did it in 6 years and this guy did it in 40. That's 6-7 times more. So it means he practiced a method which was six, seven times slower. There are methods which are extremely slow in India and Tibet, and many people get cheated with that 
thinking a guru tells them, oh, you do this, you do that. And they say, oh my God, I got a real spiritual path. Yeah, it will take 150 years to reach Samadhi following this path. So you need at least three lifetimes, 50 years each, in which you will do this method so that you reach some. So it will not happen in this lifetime. No? So in this way, we, uh, you need to have clarity of spirit. There are methods and methods, some of them faster, some of them more crazy. It's like driving a car. You can drive an electric car which goes with 30 kilometers per hour, but you can drive a McLaren, Mercedes, Porsche, something from the Formula One, which goes with 300 kilometers per hour. You know? Totally different to drive those two. You know? So some methods are faster, some methods are slower in spirituality. And of course, it also matters how much you put in it. So back to our story. Yoga also gives this feeling. Uh, oh, I met with Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati and I learned from him Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, all sorts of other, Tantric Yoga, Kashmiri Shaivis, Mahavidya Science. And I'm flying like an airplane, you know, I'm just going so fast. And every day I'm doing two hours, four hours, six hours, whatever of practice. And I feel like I'm, I'm going like a rocket. And I think in a matter of years, I'm going to see the light. I'm going to start having the higher states of consciousness and all that. But you should never forget that there is also the factor called grace. And as I said, in the 20th century, because if you look in the 19th century, it already starts being legends. We don't have clear records. What happened in India or in Tibet in the 18th century, in the 17th century, in the 16th century, is like there's a lot of legend about it. At least about some of the yogis in the 20th century, we know something. We have photos of them. We have films made with them. There are books, their words have been recorded. There is more knowledge. Okay, a few in 19th century as well. But I'm talking in the modern times and contemporary history. And in these times, how many yogis in India and Tibet did we hear that they got enlightened without too much practice? I personally remember only three spiritual persons who can be in that category. And they are Mahananda Mai, Jiddu Krishnamurti, and Ramana Maharishi. These three are three yogis, different from each other and very similar in a way, which all of them did not do much yoga. Jiddu Krishnamurti was having states of samadhi when he was six years old. He definitely had not done any yoga in this life, in this body. Mahananda Mai claimed that she had states of cosmic consciousness when she was two years old. Ramana Maharishi had a spiritual crisis, he didn't even know it was a spiritual crisis, when he was 17 years old, no yoga until then, just football with the boys in the high school, and then suddenly at 17 years old, in half an hour, he got into a state of samadhi, which he could then reproduce for the rest of his life. And that's what I'm trying to tell you here, is that three people in a hundred years is very, very little. Very, very little. There are more people in a hundred years in India that won the national lottery. 
there are tens of people who won the national lottery. There are just three people who had a sort of a grace. And even then, we can't see why this grace acted. Because Jiddu Krishnamurti, Maanandamai, Ramana Maharishi, they have been very high souls. Even when they got the cosmic consciousness freely, like without effort, they didn't have to buy their own enlightenment with practice. They were wonderful people. None of them has been a total jerk. All of you know jerks. I know a few among my old friends, classmates, relatives in my family. Everybody has in their circle of people they have known, people who are really, really assholes. No? None of these three people was a total asshole. On the contrary, as they found themselves, whoops, ping, that the bulb turned on in their Sahasrara, they were spiritual people. They stayed with it. They worked on it. They taught about it. And they were generally moral, ethical, compassionate. Of course, they had their own temperament. No, like, for example, Jiddu Krishnamurti, when he was young, he was very much a womanizer. He seduced a lot of girls. And one of my gurus, Swami Gitananda, he told me if he would come to India, like now he was, then he was 80-something years old, and Gitananda said, if Krishnamurti would land in India today, tomorrow there are some angry fathers who have their guns prepared to go and blow his head off, because 10, 20, 30 years ago, he had seduced their daughters, sexually speaking. And Jiddu Krishnamurti was not a tantric guru, and uh, he was not teaching Tantra so as to say that maybe seduction was one of the technical methods that he was teaching. No, it was just seduction for the sake of seduction. His balls were swollen and he wanted girls. And he just, and then you can say an enlightened being, yeah, sure. But even if they are not tantric teachers, yeah, they can still have a human part here or there and so on. At least for a tantric teacher, that's an instrument of work. A tantric teacher is trying to teach something via sex. But uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti was not. He was just having sexual attraction towards some girls, and he acted on it. But what I'm trying to say that even if you can find some funny parts with Jiddu Krishnamurti or whoever, they still, they were not terrible people. They were not assholes. You can see that this grace hit souls that were advanced souls, old souls. Like Jiddu Krishnamurti was like 99.9% enlightened already. And then the cosmic consciousness came the last beep to it. And then Jiddu Krishnamurti was a spiritual master for a long time lifetime. So I just want to make sure that you understand the fact that grace, this force that we call grace, is not random or chaotic. It knows things about Ramana Maharishi that you and I don't know. And why was Ramana Maharishi chosen 
to be hit by the lightning bolt of God. Neither I nor many, 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 many other spiritual teachers, we cannot explain. It's the secret of God. It's the secret of the soul of Ramana Maharishi. He was a special soul and he was 99.9% there. And somehow in the economy of India and in the economy of the world, he was needed. And then the cosmic consciousness said, we have to promote somebody to general. Who is the most prepared here to be a spiritual general? Ramana. And then Ramana got touched by it and Ramana became an enlightened being. So I want you to understand, to understand this parable of Jesus with a lamp that spirituality is a mixture of two things. Spirituality is a mixture of personal effort because if you don't do personal efforts and you hope that you are like Ramana Maharishi, most probably you are just phantasmagoric and you are just living in a bubble of illusion and your chance to be true is less than to win the national lottery, much less than to win the national lottery, you know, and therefore you cannot just stay. You need to knock at the door. You need to say, God, 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 and you have to keep saying it. What if it takes 40 years? Well, if it takes 40 years, I hope you are patient. I hope you are stubborn enough because it can take 40 years and you are not supposed to stop. So, one part of the equation is personal effort. Exception made of three people in a hundred years. Everybody else who did something in spirituality did it after they did personal effort. Three years, six years, twelve years, forty years, whatever, people did spiritual efforts. But spiritual efforts are not enough. It needs that God approves. You cannot become enlightened, which means blossom, realize, wake up, without the divine consciousness saying, okay, come, come, open up. It cannot go without the grace. And therefore, spirituality is an inexpressible mixture between personal effort and grace. And here, Jesus is talking from the standpoint of grace. He says, nobody, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar. Like, who, who lights a lamp? God. Today, in this day, on planet Earth, there are probably a million people knocking at the door. You here in Agama, a few other people in other yoga schools, people in ashrams, in monasteries, in Sufi dargas, in a lot of places, they knock at the door. And however, how many will reach enlightenment in this, let's say, next 10 years? Not all one million of those. For a variety of reasons which I cannot approach right now, because it will make this presentation way too long. But one of the reasons is also the fact that there is grace. And grace says, Jesus 
to proclaim Christianity, he needs 12 strong men, at least in the first generation. We'll talk about 50 years later. But in the first generation, just as soon as Jesus does his thing, we need how many? How many could create Christianity? How many? How many? 12. 12. 12 would be, a, would be enough, more than enough. One will go to India, two of them will go to Rome, one of them will go to whatever, to Thracia, one of them will go in the island of Patmos, you know, they will go wherever. How many we need all in all? 12. So there is like a quota, like Jesus, we can give you 12 disciples who will see the light. Those 12 are enough. Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus would have had 1,200 apostles, all of them enlightened? Swami Vivekananda, the great of India, he said it would take, he said in a funny way, he said, give me, oh God, a hundred enlightened disciples and I can change all the living conditions on the face of this earth. Try to realize, if 12 after Jesus did what they did, how much more would have been if there were 100? Not to mention 1,200. So why didn't it happen that way? It didn't happen that way because God did not need. We are flowers on a tree, and a tree cannot carry too many flowers. Not too little, but not too many as well. There is a quota. It's exactly the same with enlightened beings. The spirits are born in such a way. Don't think that super enlightened spirits are there and then God is a cruel bastard who says, no, 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 no. You are, but I need only 12. So only the first 12 step in and the others stay on the verge. No, there is a synchronicity. Like the quality of the souls is such that proportionally about 12 can reach and those 12 are simply the 12 which are best at the right time it's exactly like you have a contest a selection you say we need 12 actors to play in the new Star Wars movie hey we need 12 if there come 14 we'll have to sack two we can carry only 12. The movie requires 12. The modern history of the earth requires what it requires. We are expecting, as a big parenthesis, by the way of this, we are expected that now, now when me, Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati talks to you, we are expected to be very close to the end of Kali Yuga. Very close which means soon, but soon can also mean 200 years from now, soon there's going to be a big mess, a very, very big mess. And when there will be a big mess, then the, un the result of it will be that there will be need for a lot of change and for a huge spiritual revolution. Right now, we are decadent. The Jewish tradition has, in many respects, become a joke, a bad joke, and even at the time of Jesus, many of them were manipuristic bastards who could not even recognize their own Messiah. 
they crucified their own Messiah, which demonstrates how much discrimination they had. In Christianity, Christianity is becoming a joke. Even the popes and the big clerics, they just speak in politically correct generalities and they talk about let's help the poor immigrants and the poor. It's like, it's bullshit, you know. Jesus never wasted time and Peter and St. Francis of Assisi, they never wasted time with dumb social activities. For them, spirituality was pure spirituality. It was the spiritual exercise. It was the big things, you know, not some, uh, yeah, if you are Christians, give some food to the poor. That's a collateral of a collateral of a collateral, you know. That's not what the spiritual practice consists of in the Christian prayer and all the rest. So Christianity is decadent to the point where the Christian priests are buggering little boys. Of course, it's exaggerated uh, by much propaganda, fiendish propaganda, but it is there because there is no smoke without some form of fire. And therefore, uh, the idea is quite clear. Yeah, it's like Christianity is very, very decadent. No? How do we make that in the middle of Christianity we accept a thing like the banking system? No, The banking system is one of the most devilish, satanic things which exists on the face of this earth. And it is written very clearly in Christianity and in the old Jewish tradition that what should, one should not charge usury, practice usury, because usury is a devilish mechanism, you know? And still all the Christian countries, so-called Christian countries, they have banks which shamelessly practice usury and they ruin person after person, institution after institution. They suck the blood out of the whole world. I could continue, like how is Christianity allowing, for example, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, when Jesus explicitly told them that that should not be done anymore. No, if somebody breaks down the Twin Towers, then you go to Afghanistan and kill hundreds of thousands of people because it's a tooth for a tooth. And a... No, it's not. Not unless you are Jewish. Then let America proclaim we are Jewish, actually. We claim we are a majority Christian country, but we are not. We are Jewish and we practice an eye for an eye and to let everybody get circumcised and be proclaimed Jewish then. No, if that's the, but it's not only America. If somebody does the same thing to France or to England, France and England answer with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And therefore, Christianity is not Christianity, it's dead. Islam, at least they have the Islamic banks that don't practice usury on loans, but unfortunately they are so violent, they misunderstood the concepts of jihad external and internal, the big one and the small one or whatever, whichever way you take it. And there is, you know, today you go in Islamic environments and you find a lot of egoism, a lot of violence, a lot of darkness, a lot of materialism. Like where are the enlightened people that Muhammad was dreaming to have around and who are doing serious spiritual, a few Sufis. There are a few Sufis in a few Muslim countries and they are 
forbidden by the law in those countries. Even in Turkey, Sufism is forbidden by the law and the punishment of prison. But because Turkey tries to be a modern country to be accepted in European Union and stuff like this, they don't enforce that law. The police is being told that chapter from the law, ignore it for now. Maybe later we'll tell you to go for it, but right now ignore it because it doesn't look good at all on television. No? And it's like it's a hypocrisy. No? Because Sufis are the hardest practicing Muslim people in the whole of the Muslim world. They are the ones who are actually spending two hours doing something with God or more every day. Okay, it's bhakti yoga, it's prayer, but still, it's prayer and with maybe more to it. In Buddhism, this is a 90-something percent Buddhist country in which we are right now. You go in Bangkok and so on, how much Buddhism is there? No, It's a lot about money, trade, profit, business, Buddhism, you know, who practices the way of the Buddha? Ah, the fact that they shave children on their head once in their life and the fact that some men are going for three months and practicing meditation. It's definitely much better than what was happening in Romania when I was a child, but it's far from being enough. No, then it's a sort of like, okay, you're doing something, but it's very little. What I'm trying to say here is that religion is very low nowadays. When I asked my guru, why don't you have so many Indian disciples? Because he had an old one and then almost none. And he shrugged his shoulders and he said, I have to admit that yoga seems to have migrated to the West. Because in India, young men and young women don't come to me, said my guru, no, and ask me to teach them the secrets of yoga. They don't want to reach nirvana. They, it's like it has been happening for centuries in India, and now they want computers, space shuttles, they want to emigrate to America and practice medicine in America and make a million dollars per year as stone-rich doctors, stuff like this. That's what they want. They don't want uh, yoga. Of course, yoga, even when it migrated to the West, unfortunately, it became gymnastics. So 95% of what is called yoga in the West, it's a caricatural yoga. It's a yoga of the monkeys. It's a monkey yoga. It's gymnastics and stretching. So anyway, let's not go into that direction. The point is that right now, the religious world, compared with the 15th century, 15th century in Islam, 15th century in Europe, 15th century in the world that we know, how much religion there was, how much spiritual impulse there was. You'll say, yeah, but some of it was corrupt. I agree with you. Some of it was corrupt, but still, all in all, religion was like widespread. In the 15th century, there was not one country in this world, except perhaps China, but not even China, that was an atheistic country. Or not, at least in China and in Japan, they practiced Buddhist spirituality, which looks like a form of atheism, but still is a form of spirituality, following in the footsteps of the Buddha. And therefore, what I'm trying to tell you, 
is spiritual world was huge in the 15th century, just five, six centuries ago. And there were a lot of spiritual teachers. Nowadays, how many spiritual teachers are there when almost nobody is interested in spirituality? So nowadays, the river of spirituality has become a small creek. It's like in a drought. It's like in the dry season. The rivers become extremely tiny and they almost dry up. Spirituality today is this small compared to what it was even five centuries ago. And it's going further, you know. I have pupils in yoga who come and ask me, uh, what's your opinion on artificial intelligence? Why don't you ask me about Shiva? Why don't you ask me about the headstand? What has, you know, like, like you are becoming like the Indians. They don't want to read Geranda Samhita. They want to make a computer software which generates artificial intelligence. Is that your problem? Is that, you know, it's like people are not even interested. They don't even see. No, Mimircha Eliade wrote his PhD calling it yoga, immortality and freedom. People think that freedom is this. And they look at that movie, funny movie with the masks, with the smiling masks, whatever, the V for Vendetta or something like this. No, like ridiculous. That movie is a ridiculous piece of crap, you know. And uh, people are looking for like, what is immortality? Ah, there does not even exist immortality, you know. So people don't come to me and they say, Swami Vivekananda Ji, we heard that there is a path to immortality called yoga. Can you teach us about it? No, they don't. Very few. You are here. Okay, now it's less than usual because Agama has had some problems which you all know and now we are in a phase of reflux. It's not the flux, it's the reflux. It's not the tide, it's the ebb. It's the opposite. So, but still, even if here there will be like normally, like 50 people, sometimes we have 80 people in a satsang, What's 80 people compared to what's happening in this world? Nothing. It's nothing. It's not even one in a million. No? So, <clears throat> the world is very low in spirituality. Consequently, there are very few gurus and very few enlightened beings. But remember, not arbitrarily. Like everybody is a potential fucking Buddha and God is keeping a lid on it and says, I need only five. How frustrating. No. The humanity is inferior. The spirits which are born now in the humanity, they are relatively inferior. Yeah, here and there you get a Swami Shivananda or whatever, you know, Paramahamsa Yogananda. But those are rare. And the number is small. But if we get in a time where all the doors will open, you know, the metaphysical images about the Armageddon, about the apocalypse, the end of the world, 
the end of Kali Yuga is that now we are 7, 8 billion people on earth and minimum 90% of these will die when the doomsday is coming. Either, either that means the third world war with nuclear weapons or that means a comet hitting the earth like in the time of the dinosaurs and we go full on into home, into stone age with no electricity and nothing. No? And then the waters will be fucked up and undrinkable. The air will be fucked up and unbreathable. There will be no food. And uh, even if you didn't die in the first 24 hours, you will die in the next six months anyway. And then planet Earth will be survived by 100,000 people. What's 100,000 compared to 8 billions of today? Not even one in a thousand. It's like 0.0 something percent. No? And those 100,000 people will do exactly what you expect them to do. They will say, oh my God, this was the punishment of God for our shit. And they will turn back to God. When you are hungry and you have no air and no water, then you start, and no electricity, then you start looking for God again. And through synchronicity, those 100,000 people that survive, they will be very evolved souls. And those very evolved souls will pick up the leftovers of yoga, of Sufi dancing, of whatever survives with them. And thus we are going to have a new religion, a brave new world, a reawakening. And in 50 years or 100 years, we are going to have Satya Yuga. 100,000 enlightened beings walking the face of the earth. Perhaps many of them mutants because of radiations or God knows what other things. And there will be another world, another cycle of existence, something which the pygmies of Kali Yuga, they can't even suspect. They even in their wildest imagination, they can't figure out what will be at that time. And that's why then there will be need for a lot of spiritual teachings. So then the cosmic consciousness will say, you know what? I need a lot of people who can see me. So I'm going to say, you, 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 open your eyes, ping. And you are going to say, but I haven't done much spiritual practice. Yeah, lucky you, grace needed you now. So you are promoted. You are just pushed forward like a soldier who in five years of war becomes a general. Because in war, a lot of quick promotions are happening because people are dying a lot. And then you find yourself suddenly like you are the next captain. Now you are a captain. Uh, I haven't done any officer school. I haven't. You are a captain. You are worthy. I followed you. You are not afraid. You are a bum. So that's what's happening. Yeah? In many, many, many situations. Yeah? It happened to me when yoga became forbidden in communist time Romania. I was one of the few people who was ready to give my life for it. And my guru from those days gave me a lot. A lot in a relatively short time. I was promoted like from soldier to general in no time. Because the times required it. It was just the need of the day. Therefore, the same thing is Jesus is implying here. He says, no one 
turns on a lamp. Which means God turns on a lamp because a lamp is required. Remember, you are not alone. You and I, we belong to an ecosystem. And the ecosystem produces what it needs. Like the humanity says, now we need an enlightened soul. Ping, here it is. Not absurdly. The soul which was the front runner, the runner-up, how the Americans say, right? How they say, the winner, and then there is the runner-up or something like this. The one who was just below. No, the one below the line. So there is one just below the line. And as soon as there is a place available, that one is bumped up. If the gold medalist loses his gold medal because they discovered he was taking drugs, then the one who had the silver medal is promoted and he's the one who gets the gold medal. It's the same in spirituality. Most people never see or infer this dimension of spirituality. They think that spirituality is some sort of romantic poetry. No, it's a sort of industrial engineering as well. The universe needs Buddhas when it needs Buddhas. And then the green light is given to them. That's grace. Grace says, now. Bada boom. And then it happens. Because of that bada boom. And therefore, the tree does not produce its flowers chaotically. The tree produces flowers when needed and how many needed. Humanity now doesn't have too many enlightened beings. I feel, and I'm very much in doubt about this feel, because I have inherited it from some of my gurus, and I think some of my gurus may have been over-enthusiastic. Maybe to encourage me, to encourage us, their pupils. Generally, spiritual people keep a sort of a positive outlook of life. And they told us the end of Kali Yuga is coming and a lot of spiritual teachers will be needed. So be prepared. Make yourselves worthy because the promotion is coming. You don't know when. No, be prepared to be bumped up to some role. You will be awakened and given work to do. Like I do have work to do. And thus, realize this aspect is also there. It's not 100% only this. It's aspiration, longing, prayer, individual work. But there is also grace. And grace is sometimes very utilitarian. Like if God will now there are a million people asking God, show yourself to me. And God directly, without playing hard to get, without any fuss, without any procrastination, without postponing 40 years, like for Totapuri, God would say, oh, you asked me to? Here it is. First time, first answer. You ask me first time, I answer to you from the first time. Suddenly we would have now a million Buddhas. There is no place for a million Buddhas now on the earth. Now the earth is full of war, violence, greed, 
egoism, confusion, and a lot of other things. And those Buddhas, they could buy themselves the islands of the Philippines and go and live all of them in the Philippines because they have nothing to do in Germany and in France and in the United States. A little bit here and there, a little bit here and there, but that's all. For that, you don't need so many Yoganandas and so many Shivanandas. But all my gurus told me, stand by, because it appears that in your lifetime, there will be a great need. Well, I'm still keeping my eyes open. I'm 56 years old. I don't know how much longer my life is going to be. And I'm still looking forward that I will catch that day where suddenly there is a huge need of spiritual teachers and spiritual presence and so on. I would really hope to see that day. For the time being, I don't see it. So that's why I'm saying you, I'm not saying no, but I'm saying, yeah, maybe, maybe it's going to happen that way or maybe not. So as I was saying before, there exists an economy of enlightenment as well. Enlightenment is not something which happens randomly or chaotically. It's something which happens at the behest of the cosmic consciousness with permission from the cosmic consciousness. That permission is called grace. And that permission is synchronized in a divine way. You cannot say it goes wrong. Like, oh, there are many, many, many souls which deserve to be enlightened right now and the bloody cosmic consciousness won't give it to them. It's not. It's synchronized. It's like demand and offer in capitalism, you know, in economic, uh, the law of demand and offer. You know, if there is a lot of demand, there is a lot of offer as well. If there is no demand, there is no offer. And uh, in a, it, it continues in a similar trend. So what I'm trying to say here is this. Jesus uses a very subtle parable when he says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in the jar. This no one is God. He says, God does not light a lamp. What is to light a lamp? To enlighten somebody, to awaken a soul. Nobody lights a, opens a lamp, lights a lamp. God does not enlighten a soul and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. An enlightened being is never useless. It's not just an absurd game that, oh, maybe somebody got enlightened and you don't know about them. But then it means they are not enlightened, probably, because God does not enlighten them and then hides them under the bed. When somebody is enlightened, it's because of a need of the tree, the tree on this planet, the tree of humanity, needs that flower to blossom. Gods give his okay, and then that flower has a role to play in the economy of the earth. Understand, it's very, God is telling you here, I'm sorry, Jesus is his God, he's telling you something here from the intimacy of the cosmic consciousness. The cosmic consciousness functions according to a law of demand and offer of itself of its own. And no one lights a lamp. God does not light a lamp 
enlighten a human being and hides it in a jar. God enlightens Jiddu Krishnamurti and Jiddu Krishnamurti disappears somewhere in the Sahara Desert. Then from the standpoint of humanity, Jiddu Krishnamurti is useless. It's a flower which serves no purpose of the tree. And then God says, why did I waste my light on Jiddu when he didn't, then I now I have to make another one who will stay with the people or do this or write a book or publish a video or do something and do something about it. That's why he says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. This is to destroy the stupid things that maybe dolphins are enlightened. All this new age caca that maybe there were some people that were enlightened and you don't know about them. And Jesus says it clearly. It's not possible. God does not light a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Because they are there for a purpose. And that purpose will be seen somewhere. Ah, that sometimes the purpose can be very discreet. Yeah, that's true. The purpose can be very discreet. That means not everybody will see it. There were Tibetan gurus who locked themselves into a cave for 12 years and they practiced only introspection and astral projection. Hey, they still had a usefulness, but it was not a usefulness that is easy to see by everybody. So, therefore, here you have to think with a very big and open mind, but the principle remains. No one, which means God, does not light a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. That's not how it happens. If somebody says, there is a light in me, yeah, it's for the world. It's not only for you. You are a flower, and a flower is not beautiful only for itself. A flower serves the whole tree. It belongs to the tree. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Like there is a usefulness to the light. When you have a Francis of Assisi, Francis of Assisi or Teresa of Avila or Ramakrishna or Milarepa, they are useful. They are put on a stand so that the world can see them and use them. They serve a purpose. We are going to say what purpose did the... I don't know, some of them have been murdered. Like Paul, the Apostle of Christ. Yeah, he spoke and spoke. He wrote and wrote. And then he got decapitated by Nero or Caligula, whoever it was. Nero, I think. In Rome. No? So, that's why I say... It's very difficult to see exactly, but they are there for a purpose. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out in the open. It's amazing, yeah? Because it means the truth will always be known eventually. Now, maybe in the time of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus were hunted down and more than 50% of people voted for Barabbas and the Romans were pissed off 
And to be a Christian just five days after Jesus was dead, or 55 days after Jesus was dead, was a terrible thing. And you couldn't even see that Jesus had been God, and that Jesus was right. And Christians were hunted down and persecuted big time. But the truth has been eventually shown. For example, the British, British style, ridiculous, but still interesting. The British in the 19th century or beginning of 20th century, I forgot, they re-judged Jesus. They simply asked the court to re-enact the trial of Jesus. And they simply proclaimed that by British law, Jesus was innocent. And that the Roman law had been unfair and they punished Jesus. Because they took all the arguments which were brought, they hired a prosecutor, a lawyer, and they judged Jesus in his physical absence once more. And this trial said he was unjustly punished. Like everything will be shown in five days or 55 days after Jesus was dead, you couldn't have said, but Jesus was right. Only a couple of fanatics, only his, uh, his disciples, but all the rest would have said, oh, come on, nah, well, we don't know. Uh, that guy was weird and so on. And then you saw he died so ugly on a cross. And uh, you don't know. And that couldn't have been anything serious. You couldn't see. Today, you can see much more of what happened in the wake of Jesus. And that's why he says there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out in the open. That's beautiful. It's an amazing statement. It says everything will be known, but it's like it was not known today to me and for the next 80 years. And I believed the wrong thing and I died like an ignorant and now I feel like I want to shoot myself through my brain. What an idiot, you know? Because it's for that time being, there was a test, there was a trial, things were happening as they were supposed to happen. But in the end, he says, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. But for most people, it's too late. If Jesus is coming tomorrow and says, all those who are Christian in the Protestant, Anglican, Calvinist, Puritanist, Neo-Protestant, and all those, they are actually not Christian. I don't consider them Christian. Many people would start cursing, you know. Many people would say, why didn't you tell me earlier? It's too late for me now when the judgment day has come. So, the truth shall be shown. But for many people, it's going to be too late. Including the fact that when you die, you see most of the truth of your life. And then all the things which you have done stupid, you will regret it. I can promise you a simple thing. The people who actively did ugly things against Agama in 2018, they will have a very unpleasant surprise when they will die. And then they are going to say, why didn't you tell me before? I do, but nobody listens. So, the truth shall be revealed to them, 
to everyone subjectively, but the question is if it's not too, too late. No, there are people who say, if I would have known this, I would have lived my life in a different way. The, for example, there are people who had near-death experience. And when they came back from death, their life changed completely. Completely. Because they said, if I would have known earlier what death actually means, and what's happening when you die, oh my God, my life would have been completely different from what it is, from what it has been. No? So there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. The big question is when? Because for most people they will see the truth when it's too late or at least too late for this lifetime. There are people who die, they do something really wrong, they die, they curse their life, they say, oh my shit, what I have done. And then in that bardo, they say, next life, if I get a chance, only if I get the chance to be born once more, I swear, I swear on everything that I can, that if I remember a little bit, that I want to remember, that I will behave so very differently, so that I don't hate myself when I die, so that I don't have this incredible state of regret. And thus sometimes you have repenting souls, souls who died very bad, and then in the next life, they are very, very willing to fix it. They are very, very willing to compensate for it. And they have a sort of a aspiration which comes from repentance, which comes from regret. Because, oh my God, I fucked it so bad in my previous life that now I kind of, I'm so repentant, so sorry. Yeah. So, those people usually when they meet a teacher or a lineage or something, they start crying. They have crying full of regret. They have a sudden awakening of the soul because suddenly something in them is like a broken heart. It's like, oh, I'm so... I'm so happy that I found you and so sorry for something which I don't remember, but I'm very sorry for that shit. So in this way, there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out in the open. All the spiritual people live by that. That's why we in spirituality, we never try to play games like to you know, secretly harbor money, guilt, machinations, playing games. No? When you are a spiritual teacher, probably you could play a lot of games because people surrender to you. But no serious spiritual teacher will ever perform machinations beyond the natural things, you know. Like you cannot tell to everybody everything at the same time because that's not part of the laws of initiation. But otherwise, nobody in spirituality would do that. Why? Because we know that everything will be brought in the open. There is nothing which I want to hide from you. No? Because everything will be known. If not now, in 300 years or something, it will still be known. And therefore, everything will be brought out in the open. 
That's why in spirituality we live in a certain state of transparency, where if we do something wrong, we are ready to concede that we have done something wrong, or not, or this, or that. Therefore, can consider, says Jesus, consider carefully how you listen. He talks about the Word of God, the seed. He continues that parable, he connects them. He says, consider how you listen. Now the sower is sowing his seeds. And consider how you listen, because no lamp is turned accidentally. Everything will be known. Nothing shall be concealed. Therefore, this is the most straightforward thing in the universe. So he says, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. How you listen to him. How you listen to the word of God, which is just being given. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. That's definitely not Marxism, which says whoever doesn't have shall be given, and whoever has shall be taxed, so that they are even. Jesus says, if Ramana Maharishi has, he shall be given even more because he is needed. He is one of the runners-up. He is one of the contenders. So there will be grace boosting Ramana Maharishi even more. And somebody who doesn't have, even if he thinks he is spiritual, religious and so on, he shall not have. He drowns in Kali Yuga. I have seen small yogis who got caught by the current. The world has changed a lot. I have started doing, having a concern for spirituality in 1978. I have started practicing yoga on a daily basis in 1981. The world has changed a lot from that time. The way people are, the degree of faith, of aspiration, the idealism, the moral purity, the selflessness, the degree of demonic actions and others, as far as I perceive the world, and I have been sailing through this world of yoga for 38 years now and more, the world has changed a lot. And therefore, remember this paradoxical law. Not only that Jesus tells you God is administering enlightenment in a very peculiar way. Offer and demand or something like that. Which we don't understand fully. But also, and not only he says, everything shall be in the open. A lamp is turned on so that it serves a purpose. For example, his predecessor, John the Baptist, was asked, what the fuck are you doing in the desert? And he said, I am the voice that cries in the desert. I am the one that cries, make straight the ways of God. So John the Baptist knew. He simply said, I am a forerunner. I am a warm-up. I am warming you up to something really great, which is going to happen right now very soon in our lifetimes. So this is 
exactly what I'm saying. Everybody is born for a purpose, even in spirituality. Even when that purpose is hard to understand, like some Tibetan yogis who lived in relative isolation. But their relative isolation, don't forget, Tibet was the roof of the world, the contact of the world with Shambhala. And therefore, in Tibet, they had to fulfill some functions. Some of those yogis had some functions. And therefore, but Jesus says, given the parable of the sower and the fact that the word of God doesn't catch with everybody, consider carefully how you listen. He says, whoever has will be given more. Like if you have some aspiration, the words of Jesus and of your guru will give you more aspiration. And because you have more aspiration, you learn yoga and you learn to do pranayama and to stand on your head and to use a mantra and to do this and to do that. And you shall be given more. And the ones who are chimpanzees and they are far, far from spirituality, they are closer to the animal condition than to the divine condition. Those of them, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. I have met many people who 20 years ago were spiritual and now they are very base, very base. They lost it. They lost pretty much everything that they had or that they thought they had. Yeah? Not everybody gets. It's not a fair world. It's not a world of Karl Marx and socialism or communism that everybody shall be given equal because Everybody is not equal. The souls are not equal. And if God needs some souls at a time, He says, wake up, wake up dear children. And now you are going to get a lot of presents. And you say, Milarepa worked 30 years and I get what... No, I haven't done in this life yoga as much as Milarepa did. So why did I get some of the gifts which Milarepa got? I feel like I'm undeserving. I feel like I'm unworthy. Of course, I don't say no. I'm saying thank you, God, for being so merciful, so generous, so graceful, that even I, who am a worm compared to Milarepa, can stand in front of people and talk about the divine nature. But apparently, I was needed I was needed for something. And if I was the first runner-up, I got picked up. My efforts, unworthy as they were, they gave some result. And that result was bingo. And I got the bingo, and I really hope you will all here get the bingo, because I hope there is going to be a great demand for spirituality in the future. Maybe in the soon future, in the near future. And that's why I'm telling to you, no? work, knock at the door, the door shall be open in its own due time, and pray that there is a lot of work to be done, because then the lamp shall be turned on. Remember, no one, God, doesn't turn a lamp when the lamp is, like, I'm going to turn on a lamp. What am I going to use this lamp for? 
there is already 25 lamps out there and they make enough light for people to see. Why do I need the lamp number 26? I don't. So then there is a synchronicity into all this. If a lamp like Jesus has been turned on, then he was necessary. That's what shows why Jesus was necessary. Why a divine presence was necessary 2,000 years ago. Because the world was on the brink of collapse from a spiritual standpoint. And thus, Jesus says very clearly, this parable is connected with the word of God. Be careful how you listen, because he who has, he who is 99% shall be given the extra 1%. So is given more, and he who doesn't have it, if the times are hard, loses even what he thinks he has it. I have met, well, I have been, I've had a teacher in Eastern Europe. I think at some point he had probably 10,000 disciples in yoga. Today he hardly has a thousand or less, and he is in a very difficult existential condition. No? And it's because, exactly because of this, like where are the thousands and thousands of people who 20 years ago were doing yoga like crazy. And now they are not. Now they have jobs with multinational companies and they are squeezed like a lemon. They are exploited by some greedy capitalists and they work their ass off and God has disappeared from their lives and hope has disappeared and spiritual practice has disappeared and they are left only with some leftovers. And tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, you hear that they drink alcohol, they do this, they do that, and soon they have become Mr. Nobody. He who has shall be given even more, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. It's very unfair. It's like God or Jesus is a liberal politician, is right-wing, is not left-wing. He doesn't say that people will be equalized. He says that people will be segregated even more. The rich will become richer and the poor will become more poor. In a spiritual environment, that is one of the laws of the universe, which you might not like, but it comes from Jesus and therefore it has to be meditated upon carefully. You must strive to have exactly like the people who go to wealth seminars and they learn about how to make money, how to make money. And you can say, yeah, but even if you stay, the government will give you the dole and will take care of you. That's not the psychology of spirituality. The psychology of spirituality is not, ah, but I'm a child of God, and even if I don't do it, God will still take care of me. You don't want to be canon fodder. You don't want to be at the bottom of the pot. You have to be like a would-be millionaire. You have to fight to make your first million. 
you have to, in spirituality, you have to work for your spirituality constantly. Because he who has shall be given more. And he who doesn't have, even the little that he imagines he has, shall be taken. When I was young, I told to one of my gurus, I felt that uh, it's difficult to progress. What is real progress? And he looked at me with his experience and he said, you know, in Kali Yuga, it is sometimes enough if you don't fall like everybody else. It's more than 30 years since I heard this teaching. And I can say the world has fallen a lot. The world which was around, I was in a communist, dark, demonic state, which was a dictatorship. Like, don't think I was living in paradise or something. I was in a bad place. And I can tell you that people and the world in my country, 35 years ago, was much, much better quality than it is today. You can maybe say that I have gone old, grumpy, and I'm a sour old man. And it's all subjective. But I'm sharing this opinion with other serious spiritual practitioners. The world has decayed in my country and in all the countries of the world. So one of my gurus said simply, if the whole world is in free fall and you just cling, you don't climb, you just cling, suddenly you'll be the highest of them because they have gone one kilometer down the drain and you are still clinging to where you were. So relatively, you are like a mountain, you are like a peak because it's all relative to what the humanity is at a given point. The gurus of Satya Yuga are much better and much bigger than the gurus of Kali Yuga. The gurus of Kali Yuga are wise only through relativity. Relative to the incredible mess which is out there, today some people are wise. But they are maybe not as wise as the rishis as Agastya or some of the great rishis of yore. No, but they are not required to be that wise. They are required to be just more wise. It's exactly like you have Mensa, the organization for intelligent people. They take the upper 2% from any country. They make the bell curve of intelligence. They know what the average of IQ is in a certain country, in a certain society, and they take they calculate where is the last 2%. And they take those last 2%. Therefore, it's relative where it is. For example, it's considered normally that the modern average IQ is 100. So to be in the upper 2%, you have to have an IQ of 118 or something. Not when I was in Denmark. When I was in Denmark, they told me, Statistics shows that Danish people, Danes, are much more intelligent than the average European citizen. The IQ is much higher in the Danish schools, and therefore to qualify for Mensa in Denmark, your IQ has to be higher than 137. Only then you qualify in the upper 2%. Therefore, it's all relative. 
Are you in the top 1% or 2% or not? The same is with spirituality. So one of my gurus when I was young told me, watch, watch it because you'll see it. The world is in free fall. And what you need to do is do not fall together with them. People say, Swamiji, you are so old-fashioned, like a dinosaur, you are patriarchal. And yes, because I did not fall with the society. That's how the society was 40 years ago. Now I seem to be like an old-fashioned dinosaur. But I just clung to my level, to my standards, to my spirituality, and to my morality and ethics and things from that time. That's all you need to do. And thus, this is the message of Jesus. If you have, you are going to be empowered because God needs to light lamps from time to time. And people are being promoted. Even an Albert Einstein is not accidental. The Time magazine has made the survey of the most influential 100 people of the 20th century. People who influenced the human civilization in the 20th century. And number one came up Albert Einstein. So you can realize that if you think that Albert Einstein was an accident, you are wrong. There is no accident in the human history and Albert Einstein was not an accident. He was there chosen. There were several scientists. Today, even there are articles in the conspiracy press, like in the Nexus magazine, which say very clearly, Albert Einstein, strictly speaking scientifically, he was a plagiarist. All the theory of relativity and all these things with MC square and so on, they are taken from Lawrence Faraday and a few other people who were before him. He's a plagiarist, strictly speaking, scientifically. He is just a smart Jew who knew to capitalize on it and to present it like, look, look, look what I have to say. But he was not saying anything new. He was recycling other people's theories. But because in that time they were not careful and they needed a hero, and he was Jewish because they were persecuted in Europe and so on, he was promoted, he was bumped by the society. And suddenly, Albert Einstein was the one bearing a flag, bearing that he was the most proeminent scientist. He was not. He was actually, I love him very much, I appreciate Albert Einstein very much. But he was not necessarily the biggest scientist of his time. He was just charismatic, and somebody up there decided, make Albert Einstein the flag ship, the flag carrier. And suddenly all the lights focused on Albert Einstein because there was an order, a telepathic order from above, from Shambhala, from the angels, from the Buddhas of the past, present and future, and ultimately from God himself. And thus, the history and the spiritual evolution is governed by mysterious laws, and here Jesus revealed one of them. Nobody lights a lamp without putting it on a stand so it can serve to something. Otherwise, it's like what the Tibetans say, when such a thing happens and it's not used, it's like a lightning striking the surface of the water. If the lightning is striking the ocean, which it does often, 
nothing happened. Nothing perceptible, nothing of any perceivable relevance happens. And as such, nobody lights a lamp without a purpose. That's why everything shall be revealed, everything has a purpose, the truth shall be known. Listen carefully, because those who have shall be bumped up by grace, and those who don't have, they will fall together with the rest of the Kali Yuga. So, my advice following this is clear. Perform your spiritual efforts. Somehow, right now, you are on. And I have a lot of pupils who are momentarily not on. They will decide if they want to be on or not, or where, or how, or when. But for the time being, you are on. If tomorrow Satya Yuga has to start, you have to be available for what will happen. Maybe Satya Yuga will not come until 200 years, but you don't know. You have to be prepared all the time as if it would happen tonight. And thus, this is a very important attitude in spirituality. Remember, the more you have, the more you shall be given. I have been given a lot of things. And because I'm sitting here and I'm making the effort to teach these things, I'm given more. Jesus is helping me even right now in this second, although maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe I'm not as good as Peter and Paul were once upon a time. But because I have something, I am given even more. I am empowered. I'm supported because I'm sitting here and I'm doing this thing for you. And therefore, what I'm asking for you is please grow up as soon as possible and do what I do so that you can also have and be given more. There is a proverb which illustrates the karma yoga of being a yoga teacher, which says, I learn while I'm teaching others. All the yoga teachers know this. When you have to teach something in yoga, it seems to you like you understand it for the first time. Only when you have to teach it. Because then Shiva is supporting you. Says, okay, now you are teaching. You really have to be one step ahead of your pupils. So here is a little bit of push for you. Being a yoga teacher is a lot of grace. That's why people who understand this principle... They want to teach yoga. They want to be yoga teachers. And you ask them, are you tired? And they say, yeah, I'm tired, but it doesn't matter. It's what I wanted to do, always. No? Because in the moment when you give, more is given to you. When you teach, you learn by teaching. Because what's happening is very, very clear. So therefore, you yourselves... Make yourself so you have, so that you shall be given more. Work, meditate, rise Kundalini, experience higher states of consciousness, practice Yama and Niyama, 
be moral, ethical, wise and spiritual, cultivate all the great virtues and give, 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 because you are going to be given three times more than you give, precisely because you give. That's why I can never get bored of teaching. People say, Swamiji, don't you get bored of teaching the whole thing? The point is not the information which I give. The information which I give can be taken from a book. I could make a video and edit it nicely and I could produce a very splendid video about the polarity of energy or about the five bodies or about this or about... The point is not that one. The point is that when you give, more is given to you. Teaching is like a spiritual drug. And once you tasted it, it's amazing. There are teachers who want to die teaching. They would teach till the last day of their lives because that's what keeps you in the flow. I have had periods in my life where for a certain reason I did not teach, let's say, for six months or for more. I immediately noticed the difference. When you don't teach, then the divine consciousness says, I don't need to pump you up because you don't give it further. So it's like a dead end. You are like a dead end. I can give if through you it reaches further. If it's a river, then I give. And therefore for me, I have decided long time ago, I am a teacher of spirituality and I will teach to one person or to a million person until I die. Because that's what I am, that's what I do. But you have to understand this principle and you have to feel it, you have to experience it and to see when you have lived like a yoga teacher teaching yoga for three years and you see what's happening to you, then you don't want to give up. Because you know when you are out of the flow, you are out of the flow. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under the bed. Thus, be aware of this thing and follow in the footsteps of the great yogis. Learn yoga, practice yoga, accomplish yoga and transmit yoga further because we live in a world without spirituality where people are committing suicide and they are emotionally in disaster. No, even the people who attack me and Agama, most of them live in hell. I feel a lot of compassion towards those people. The people who hate me and who hate Agama, they actually live in hell. It's true, I sometimes, unfortunately, feel a bit irritated when they overdo it. But actually, my most feeling for them is the feeling of compassion. Because those people are howling from hell. And all their aggression and wickedness is just a cry for attention. And it's a cry for mercy. Because they live in hell and they go in an even deeper hell by doing what they do. And their soul intuitively knows this. And they are in for a very, very bad trip, which will last for a long time. And that's why it is important to know that when you lost it, you tumble down very quickly. And when you have it, you shall be given more. So I wish that you will all keep it somewhere, somehow, and be in the flow, be in the grace. 
that is this marvelous parable of the lamp in the darkness of Jesus and which completes the parable of the sower. I think it is enough for tonight. It's been a long session. Thank you all for resisting. With this we'll stop here. As usually I tell you if you have questions send them to the Q&A and we'll meet in the next satsangs and continue with Jesus. I started having the feeling that after a while in the summer time I might interrupt and make a few other satsangs about other themes which came up but um, it's not because I got bored or anything it's simply because this is taking very very long and we become focused only on this message of Jesus it's true there is incredible wisdom coming from this and incredible revelations as you can see Jesus here reveals how God acts intimately behind the curtains what's happening and only a little aspect of it and thus it's very instructive and we learn a lot about our spiritual lives and at the same time I'm contemplating if I should in this season until the end of August or something like this explore a few other uh, individual themes in these satsangs. Anyway, it is enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining and I'll see you in our next conferences.